millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Kicking the Kyriarchy, the intersectional feminist podcast series where we platform stories, voices and narratives ignored by the mainstream. We are your hosts, Sid and Elena, and each month we take one topic and give you three voices, all different, all amazing and all challenging the fucking mainstream. Last month it was race and it was a bang tidy episode. What does bang tidy mean? <laughs> I forgot that you didn't know what it means. We'll, we'll giggle that later, Sid. But moving on, here is some love that we got for the last episode. Lau Millwood told us that the race episode plus coffee made her commute that much more bearable. Thanks, mate. And that's our favourite kind of revolutionary, a caffeinated one. B said the episode was really impactful and had educational discussions from three amazing women of colour, which we would be inclined to agree with. Emma Hallahan said that she'd already learnt so much from Sienna in the first 20 minutes of the episode. And she's totally right. Sienna was unreal. Max actually bought a copy of The Good Immigrant after hearing Ming on the podcast. We've also had a few emails about starting a book club. And this month it was from someone called Lizzie. And so that is exactly what we are going to do. But it's important to remember that we're not academics and we definitely don't want to try to be. We want this content to be as accessible as possible. And should you be interested in doing your own research, we're going to put some of the resources out there for you that the guests have already suggested. So... Watch this space for that and send us your recommendations. This is your book list, your resource list. You can email us kickingthekariaki at gmail.com. Tweet us at kickkariaki. Visit our website www.kickingthekariaki.org. Or let us know on Facebook at kickingthekariaki. This episode is another biggie. Last month we talked about race and we have no intention of slowing down with the beefy topics. So this month we're talking class. Social and economic class, to be precise. This is something we're both keen to cover as two white middle class women. We decided it was time to cover some topics that we have shied away from before. Class can sometimes be a difficult thing to talk about or to notice. Um, you know, especially when you think about the UK is in quote unquote a first world country, I guess. We're one of the most technologically advanced countries and pretty much everyone is literate to a certain extent, right? But we rarely acknowledge that the UK has one of the biggest class divides going. Uh, as the rich get richer, that gap just gets bigger. And I still don't understand why to this day we still vilify the unemployed single mums as the benefit scroungers and not the tax avoiding companies that you get your morning coffee from every day. 
Then there's the migrant community, who are often forgotten as being part of the working class in the UK. Some are at a disadvantage for not being white, others for not being British, add language barriers to the equation, and young migrant children can grow up and take on the responsibility for their family. And then finally, there's Grenfell, which is uh, it's a painful representation of our times. You could say it's symbolic of the class divide in the UK. The UK's poorest burned in an unsafe council tower block next to the homes of the wealthiest in London. And even today, months later, tenants affected by the fire are still waiting to be rehomed. So, what's it like to live in a council flat after an event like Grenfell? What is cultural capital and how does that affect opportunity? What is the caste system? And does it exist here in the UK? Does it have a relationship with class? Enough from us and over to our guests. I'm Richard, or Rich. I'm white, I'm gay, fish-gendered, non-disabled, and I'm working class. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this month. We're covering class and we're very excited to have you on to chat to us about this as this is a topic, you know, we've been wanting to do for a while and Sid and I don't really know much about it. So I guess to open it up, tell us what class is. I think class first and foremost for me is about power. And I think at the moment the way our power is organised in British life is through capitalism and recently I was on a Twitter discussion forum um, about, I'm I'm a PhD student and uh, the topic was about being working class in academia and somebody said on the forum that oh there's no you know class is an outdated descriptive category we should be using more up to date or relevant categories and I was unhappy about that and I made the point that for as long as we have capitalism we have class and I think that's been one of the really frustrating things for me thinking about my own identity and thinking about as a research topic that what when people deny class they do it in a really silly way so you know, the the idea, the, the first kind of time that the working class were talked about was probably two, three hundred years ago uh, when Adam Smith, the famous economist, wrote this book about capitalism. And the kind of capitalism he described then is different to the kind of capitalism we have now, but we still talk about capitalism. So I think for that, we should still talk about class. I think it's firstly it's important to recognise that class has changed and is changing and probably in the next few years it might have changed and shifted again. Um, but I suppose to come back to the power thing, the, the other really important part of it for me is it's the it's class is about what you have and what you don't have. And I think when we talk about when, when we see class and we see we see it we, we see it all the time we see it everywhere we see it in on buildings we see it on people and there's this whole thing that people start to talk about a lot more it seems to me recent about cultural capital which is about knowledge it's about making the right decisions it's about all of those things and I think it's about doing things right 
It's about, and when we say doing things right, it means doing things that are middle class. And so when you don't do things that are middle class, you end up doing, you end up becoming and showing yourself as working class. And I think that's, for me, it's about not having power, not having the right knowledge, not having the right experiences, not knowing the right people. And because of all of those things, you end up not having enough money and the right kinds of money. Mm. So I think that's a bit broadly for me. Uh, it's about not having power and it's about something that exists within capitalism. Could you give us a quick introduction to what the relationship is between capitalism and class? So I suppose capitalism creates class because you the reason we all go to work is because we need money, we need somewhere to live, we need to eat. And for as long as that system is in place, we will always have to do those things and we won't be doing the kinds of things that interest us. There might be parts of our jobs that we find really interesting, but there are always going to be parts of the job, admin or whatever it might be, that we thoroughly, thoroughly hate doing and we find boring and we don't want to do, etc., etc. And so under capitalism, we end up doing things that aren't the kind of things that we want to do. So I suppose suppose that's the really basic explanation for it, I think. Interesting. So we think about, so we've kind of come to the the conclusion that class is because capitalism is all about money, right? Making money. And like you you said it really nicely about having power and that essentially, you know, if you have, if you have money and materialistic things or more than one person, therefore you have more power. And then there kind of becomes a bit of a, a class divide in that sense. Do you think that it's actually possible to have or to build a classless society? Because the way that I sometimes understand the world and think about the world is that like, as humans, we're kind of intrinsically bastards really or like you know not very nice you know for the way that we've designed our society is that you know for us to be powerful or there always has to be someone else that isn't powerful for someone to be rich there has to be someone that isn't rich so is it possible to live in a classless society do you think oh i really hope we're not all bastards (laughs) i mean that's Um, a very sweeping generalization no 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 and i take the point um i don't i don't know i think i think there have been moments in human history where people think way more collectively, and I think I don't know. I'm not. I'm not convinced that it's it's possible that a classless society is possible. I think there are things that we could do to test it out. I think there are things around inheritance. You know, if we abolish inheritance altogether, that that might help for one, because that I mean that is part of the class system, you know, this this really silly idea that, you know, oh, I worked really hard to get what I've got and then I will pass it on to somebody else. Well, well why? That's, you know, if you, you know, the whole idea of meritocracy is, is a false one because there's no way that meritocracy can work with, when you have inheritance. A lot, a lot of work is being done looking at the differences between working class kids and middle class kids. And even at the age of five, the middle class, middle class kids have a significantly bigger uh, vocabulary than a, the same working class kid. And that's because inheritance means that you can live in the same
in-house or your life if you want to. It means that you'll have books. It means that you have time to read and, you know, do all those things, you know. And, and there are things bound up with that, like, oh, you believe in education, so it's worthwhile doing. So there are, there are things, I think there are things we can do. I don't know whether I can't see a class of society happening in my lifetime, although we probably really need it. So it is interesting that what you're saying is that there's actually a lot more that goes into class. You know, um, maybe it's the type of job you have and the money that you earn and, the, and where you live and it's not necessarily... And, and, and the clothes that you wear as and well. cultural capital. Right. And so yeah, totally. can, you, can you explain or can you summarise what kind of... what makes up class or what influences the, the, the class that you're in, whether you're working class, middle class, upper class? I think it's... You know, like, uh, I, I would never, you know, I am a certain kind of working class person. I think I, and I do it all the time. I say working class, but really I should be saying working classes because there are lots of different types of working class people. There are lots of different experiences in the working class. But I think all of the things that I mention, this will make up a certain kind of working class person if that makes sense. Yeah. So for some people, uh, some working class people I know and love very much are really kind. There are other kinds of working class people who are just really, you know, put your money away, I'll get you this. A real general, you know, if they've got the money, they'll give it to you kind of thing. And so there's there's that which is based on much more of a, a, a community kind of experience of being working class. So I think I think really what I would say is that all of those things, different aspects of those things that I've mentioned that you just repeated then make up a working class person, but to note that there are different kinds of working class person as well. There's this thing, isn't there, which is that whenever the media talks about class, it's always talking about white working class people. Yeah. It's it's that's so silly. That's so silly. And I think I think there's probably a political reason that the working class is being described in those terms. I think what what's interesting to me is that for a long time the whole thing was about being everybody was middle class now, apart from these couple of you know, handful of, you know, disgusting chavs, whatever, like apart from them, everyone else was middle class. And so like everybody, whether you were like on minimum wage but working forty hours a week or if you were a teacher or if you were a millionaire, you were all the same thing. But that has started to unravel a little bit. And I think last year kind of showed that with the whole Trump thing, with the whole Brexit thing, this narrative's being created. And I think what what happened last year was that this idea of the white working class was constructed as a way for middle-class liberals to dislike the working class and also to divide the working class, which is a multi-ethnic mass of people. Um, I think I think when you look at the working class, I think the embodiment of a working class community is what we saw uh, with the Grenfell disaster. Mm, yes, you know, very people, good point. Yes. Well, I mean, it was it was you know what came what came out of that tragedy were a few things the the Kensington Council were utterly classist utterly racist and I don't know if I should be saying I'm probably get sued for saying all this I don't know but like they were they were you know like the the neglect they those people suffered and 
don't think he's far he's far wrong there because what we we saw in that was people were neglected because they were poor, they were people of colour. But what you saw in the tower and the stories that came out after was that it was a community of people. And there were people there who were refugees, there were people there who were part of what, let's just say for the sake of ease, the white working class, the people from immigrant families. Like It was just a community of people and those kinds of divisions that we've seen in the media didn't appear to exist in the testimonies of the people that we saw after the disaster. They talked about themselves as a community. And it was interesting to me that it was, they were talking about that in terms of the tower block because the tower block has been a place that has been kind of understood as a place where drug dealers live and there are all these kinds of social tensions in them. But actually they've, they've been, and for decades, they've been sites of community. And the reality, a place like Grenfell is that working class people are a diverse bunch of people that is global, that is local, that is that is everything about it's just it was just everything about our our contemporary society. <clears throat> and that is what class is. Class is utterly di- utterly diverse. So I think when people talk about we've really got to avoid talking about the working classes as white. Right, and it's such a good point to raise Grenfell, the Grenfell Tower, because it it perfectly, in a way, summarises or describes the class issue in the UK, you know, in the sense that it was this tower block just on the cusp of Kensington and Chelsea, and how, and it's interesting when you talk about the people from Grenfell, that how, essentially, they're they're subhuman, you know, the people in that tower block, in the sense that people didn't care enough about the type of people that live in these tower blocks to really carry out, you know, the maintenance checks to make sure that they're living in safe places. And so why do you think, why has it become so socially acceptable to hate working class people in society? And why is this such a problem in the UK? And that's probably two very loaded, difficult questions, but why do you think? <laughs> I, I would probably say that the elites have always hated us. And when I say hate, I'm, I'm quite serious using that word they hate us because what they see and I think as well when you see you know the last 200 years you know when the and it's almost uh, the 200 year anniversary of the Peterloo massacre which is something that happened in Manchester uh, which was working class people demanding the right to vote and I think it starts from that point that what the elites see is that we're taking what is rightfully theirs and you, you see it through the, the narratives around taxation like we're taking their money from them so we can have you know all these luxuries like free health care and you know uh, all, all of that all of that kind of thing so I think they resent us that they see us as leeches that we're taking their money which is ridiculous because you know we we generate all the wealth in the world so I think I think it's rooted it's rooted in that but I think it, and it's what I was talking about at the beginning uh, about cultural with cultural capital because cultural capital means doing things correctly so it means going to doing the right cultural things behaving in the right ways and people when we when we don't do that it's utterly disgusting to them so this this reminds me of a, a, a situation recently I was out 
having lunch with a friend that we got on the group on and it was quite a nice it was quite a nice place and we were having cake and my friend uh, was eating and dropped a bit of the cake on the white tablecloth and she like, scrambled for the uh, napkin to uh, you know mop up the chocolate cake she's like shit shit uh, and she was she was really panicked she no she wasn't really panicked but she was a bit like oh my god like I've shown myself up and I think that's that's what it is that we feel that we're not doing the right things and the reason I think we don't we fear not doing the right things that we're not doing cultural capital correctly is that we will that they'll they'll, they'll they hate us for it that we don't we don't perform our roles as good middle-class human beings properly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that this idea that working-class people are inherently lazy and that they're, like, leeching off of, you know, the, the elite who are working hard and who are, are funding things like the NHS and benefits. But then it's like, isn't that ridiculously hypocritical? Because half the time, people who are in the elite haven't actually worked to get the money that they've been born into. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the clues in the names, it's called the working class. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, exactly. And, you know, like, I mean, if it wasn't so disgusting, it's kind of funny that, you know, people who, you know, as you say, like people who have inherited vast amounts of wealth say that people are working hard enough for the, for the things they have. You know, especially when you talk in terms of like the, 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 the whole thing around the welfare scrounger, that, that, whole, that whole idea is just ridiculous, you know. Uh, the amount of money the state loses through benefit fraud is just just so minor compared to tax evasion and all that kind of thing. But it's the thing that sticks because, and I think the reason why it sticks is because you know we most people are closer to those kinds of people than the elite. Yeah, it's a really good point. It, so basically, by cancelling all inheritance and by creating a universal basic income, we would be on our way to a classless society as long as we sorted out cultural capital too <laughs> basically yeah, there's, yeah there's, there's, there's a lot of work to do yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah exactly. let's get to it <laughs> thank you yeah. so much rich for for coming on the podcast and for sharing with us your 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 story and your your perspectives it's been really really interesting thank you so much okay two final questions one is how can we be a better ally to working class communities I think, I mean, I could say here, like, oh, just let us speak and blah, 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 and all that kind of thing. And you can. But what I would say is, I think there, there are definitely differences between working class and middle class people culturally. But I think there are significantly less differences between working class and middle class people economically. So our economic interests are absolutely the same. So if your income is £80,000 a year and mine is £20,000 a year, that is quite a lot of money. But you know, we, our interests are the same. Like We both want to have a universal healthcare system because if you get cancer, whether you're at £80,000 a year, it doesn't really matter because you're not going to be able to afford the treatment. So I think really what I would say is middle-class people should disabuse themselves from the idea that they are they don't share the same interests as working-class people because we do. Mm. So I would say that. That's some, that's really good. Thank you. I didn't realize I'd never thought about it that way before. So I'm really glad you said that. 
And then finally, cool. is how can people find out more about what you're working on or follow you or anything you're working on that you'd like to platform, anything like that? The floor is yours. You can follow me if you want. Um, I'm uh, um, on Twitter at Richard Bromhall, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-B-R-O-M-H-A-L-L. Um, you can follow me. Um, always, always interested in talking to people about these ideas and what we can do to make things better. I don't know if there's anything I'm really working on that I want to platform, really, but what I would, what I would platform is this week... I went to see the film Dispossession, which is about the housing crisis in the UK. And I suppose I would encourage everyone um, as a starting point just to go and see that film if it's on show at a cinema near you. Amazing advice and really accessible <laughs> and like interesting. You know, I would go see a movie. Yeah, never had a movie recommendation before. Yeah, Could definitely do that. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go go and see that. Go and see them. It's 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 kind of touring. It's touring the country at the moment. But if you can't get to see it, then definitely get it on DVD when it comes out. Which I'm sure we'll see. Amazing, Rich. Thank you so much. This has been so interesting. I could sit and have a conversation with you all day about I think anything and everything. Really, it's been <laughs> really great. Cool, cool, great. No, it's been great. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. No, thank you. This yeah. has been wonderful. So that was Rich, and. I'd never really thought about this idea of cultural capital before. And that's definitely something that I'm going to take away from that, as well as pretty much everything else that you said. Up next is Hijira, who definitely has a personal story that you don't want to miss. So my name's Hijira, Hijira Begum. I'm a Muslim woman of colour, non-disabled, straight and... Well, oh yes, this. <laughs> That's cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hajira, for coming on the podcast this month. We really appreciate it. It's about class and it's something that we've wanted to do for a while and we're both really interested in it and something that Sid and I probably don't have that much experience with. I think it's safe to say Definitely that we're don't. <laughs> very privileged in that sense and yeah don't have a lot of experience with anything like this so could you maybe give us um, a bit of an introduction into what class means to you or what your experience is with class okay yeah so parents are both separated and while my dad was around he was working but very low income to the point where he also received some sort of benefits Um, and after he left my mum never worked so we were completely reliant on benefits so in that sense, I guess, I don't really know if there is a word for something lower than working class, but no one in my family was working. So I always say working class, but actually I don't feel like it was working. I feel like it was something lower than that. So class has always been something that I've dealt with, um, having the low income background, but then also everything else that comes with that. So yeah, I've definitely say I've experienced class <laughs> as an issue. You talked about the, the other things that come with that, not just mm-hmm. the low income. Could you tell us a little bit about what those things are? So I think the way I see class, it's not just what you're earning, because, for example, right now I am earning a certain amount of money and everyone around me who I work with is middle class, but then I don't have access to the people that they know. I don't have access to the experiences that they might have had growing up, going on family holidays, going on weekends away, like going to ski trips. You know, those are things I've never done and I probably even now can't afford to do, um, especially given I'm the only person working, so I can't afford to take my family out on those kind of places. Just things that they is so normal for them, like theatre trips that they go to, whereas for me that will be once every two years, really big, like a thing that I've worked hard to pay for as opposed to, oh, I'm just going to go to a theatre on the weekend. So, you know, these kind of thing. I think it's like a experience, like whole experience different. Um, and then there's also the way people see you. So coming from a working class background, people kind of see 
my family is not, you know, not working hard enough, scroungers, you know, living off the state. So in those ways, like, they seem to think maybe I don't deserve some of the stuff that I've had. Like, why do I have free healthcare when my family don't contribute to those kind of things? So it's dealing with that. So the experiences that I have, but then also the way people treat me because of just so happens the, the, the situation that my family are in. So it's a bit of both of those. Yeah. When did you realise that when that class was affecting you growing up? I guess actually only really doing this podcast when I've had to separate class. But when I think about class, I never really separate it from anything else that's part of my identity. So being Muslim, being a woman of colour, it all is part of the package. And I can't really put my finger on what has affected what. So so, um, you guys talk about intersectional um, experiences a lot. And that is what it is. So... I can talk about like growing up when in year five when we moved houses and we had to tell all the banks that we've moved to change our addresses and that was me in year five writing those letters to the banks. Like, um, it was so normal that that I knew that I was the eldest in the family. My parents can't write very good English, so that's something I had to do. And it wasn't even like, oh, look at you being so good and being so smart enough to do that. That was just a thing that I did. Um, so I guess that has that class aspect to it, but it's also the fact that my parents came here, so it's the fact that they've migrated over, so the English isn't very good. So it's all a mixture of things. I guess I didn't really realise it was anything not normal until I went to university and was surrounded by people of middle-class backgrounds. That's the first time I experienced it and just realising the experiences that they've had growing up was very different to mine. Because growing up, everyone in my community, I live in a council estate, was the same as me. Like, every kid, if you were the eldest person, you were dealing with the letters, you were dealing with the telephone calls, you were dealing with the doctor's appointments. Did you doing that? That was something you just took on and it wasn't a... Um, you weren't considered to be any smarter for doing it. That was just a responsibility you took on and it wasn't it didn't feel like a responsibility, it was just the job that you had as the eldest in the family. Wow, that's a really that's a massive responsibility. When I compare it when I think about me and how mm. I can barely keep track of my bills now and that's something that you were doing when you were in year five and that yeah. you were a child. So how has that then kind of impacted you growing up now? Would you look back on that and are you how do you feel about that? Are you angry? Are you sad? Mm. Or or does it, or if it's just part of life for you? I think, I mean, it is a part of life. I guess it's a bit frustrating seeing my little sisters and, like, they are living... I guess because I am working and I have that income now and there's disposable income, which we never had before, because um, before anything we were earning was going to a use and there wasn't any sort of disposable income. They've got some kind of privileges that I never had before and it doesn't make me angry, but it does make me a bit frustrated, like, come on, guys, you have to learn these things. Um, which I suppose they don't, but because I have, I kind of feel like, oh, how do you still not know how to format a letter properly? Because I did um, that kind of thing. But no, it doesn't make me angry at all. It's it's just something I had to do. And to be honest, I'm here probably where I am right now because of the skills that I've learned. Because there was nothing else to teach me how to write properly or speak proper. It was those experiences that taught me. And I, I remember talking to my university friends and talking about how we have like a white, white voice when we go to university. And actually, if I think about it, it's not a white voice, it was a middle-class voice, because mm. um, there is no white voice. It was just speaking in a way that, the way you can hear people speak proper on TV. And it's actually doing all the telephone calls that made me realise I had to have that voice to be taken seriously. So I guess those experiences gave me the tools that I needed to then navigate university space and workspace now. So I appreciate it. Do you think people realised that when they were talking to you that they were talking to a child? No, definitely not, no. Because, so now... Like, I remember sometimes they would ask if I'm 16, but often they wouldn't. And I was, what, 13, 14, maybe even younger at the time. And no, it's just a voice that you put on and it's 
like you kind of automatically learn to do it right yeah so and it's not just me like it's everyone who I know who was the eldest of their family knows exactly what to do and exactly like I knew how the benefit system for example worked I've always known how it works and which benefit my parents should be getting and knowing when to track that and knowing what kind of stuff we have like we need that kind of thing which now it's all kind of changed and because I don't have to do that anymore because my mum's very capable of doing that on her own now I'd feel so lost I'm just like how did I manage that at such a young age because it is so confusing but I guess it comes with a need that you need to do this and you kind of just have to deal with it and if you don't then you're going to suffer for it Right Mm. What's it been like for your mum because she must have had to get her daughter to Mm. to be the main communicator to think about these things but now she can do this herself I, I think it's a number of things because when my dad was around he kind of didn't give the opportunity to my mum to pick those things up so it was, it did fall on me but after he left and she was able to take on that role as like a single parent and kind of take on a role that you expect a parent to take on anyway it kind of he gave that, she had that freedom now so she was able to pick those things up and kind of be more of herself take more of control on, on her own things that she wanted to but also bearing in mind that at that point I also was earning so there was less stress like if something she like she missed a date or something and we didn't get she didn't receive benefits for a month we didn't starve like I had income coming in and we could just sort it out later there wasn't that pressure that everything had to be sorted otherwise we wouldn't have any income coming in mm. so I guess there was a little bit more freedom so she had the space to grow whereas before if something messed up then we wouldn't have any money at all coming in so there wasn't that space to yeah. let her learn and you said that you lived in a, a council estate. Mm. So I guess how does what happened with Grenfell Tower feel or, yeah? Yeah, um, so yeah, so I still live in a council estate, not a tower block, but I do have family and friends who do live in tower blocks. And um, it felt like it was happening to me. Like I remember waking up and watching that and it it really did feel like it was my own family and my own friends and nothing has affected me as much as Grenfell Tower has like all the attacks that we have in London and across the world and even like flooding that we have in Bangladesh where my own family live nothing like that has affected me as Grenfell Tower has because I see what happened there could very much happen to my own home and it has been happening to my own home that I live in um, a place where they've kind of you have loads of young people coming in young white people coming in you see the local area changing you see um they're making the buildings look prettier and you know it makes you think like is it now safer and you know all these questions that come in and yeah it really it, it feels so personal and actually thinking about Grenville Tower and then how other people who are not from a background like mine how they reacted to it um so when I went back to work the next day someone made a joke about oh it's probably a bomb making going wrong and they were all laughing about it and you know it just made me realize that oh these people who I'm working with they'll never be like me and they'll never be me like no matter how much they have all these diversity trainings and all these trainings like they just don't get it they just don't understand what it's like to be living where we live and how we have to live it's such a horrible joke yeah exactly and it's not funny but everyone was no. laughing and yeah and it just it just it's th- it's these little jokes like that that make you kind of no matter how much you think you're fitting in you're actually not like there's no way i would ever find that funny mm. and they seem to think it is so it's difficult thinking about grenfell mm. particularly because it's it's almost too Perfect to highlight how terrible the government or or the state is at looking after the people, I guess, in the UK or people mm. that who live in tower blocks like that. 
how how does it how does something like that make you feel towards you know the towards the state and towards our government do you do you feel like you're being taken care of or do you think that they're actually looking out for people at all um no <laughs> so i mean i've always been um during university being more aware of politics I have been, I guess, angry at the government for a while, but that I think it was just a perfect example. Like you said, it was a perfect example of how they don't take care of people. And actually, after Grenfell, we had letters posted to our house saying, like, from the council, saying they've done, like, our flat does meet fire regulations, something like that. And it's just like, well, you're obviously trying to cover your back now. This is clearly not a sign of something that you've done um, out of your own back. And, for example, my own flat does not have a fire alarm. And we've been trying to get a fire alarm for probably two or three years now I've been like trying to chase council and as far as they're concerned we can get one of those ones from like you can buy in a shop but they don't stick to our wall they fall down for years actually I think I've been trying since year seven and I'm now finished uni but it's it's after that that my mum asked again and within weeks we have now got a fire alarm in the building and it just goes to show just how much they cover their own backs because before Grenfell, they would have never, like, it was literally calling them every couple of months asking, can you please put one in? We even got the fire brigade to come and install a free one, which was great, but it just it falls down, it doesn't stick to the wall, you need to get one that's wired in. And now we have one that's wired in. I'm just good to show. Do you think that's because of the type of community that it is? Like, say it was, like, someone calling from Chelsea who lived in a very lovely SW1 flat and who called to get their fire alarm sorted. Do you think somebody probably would have gone and sorted it? Or do you think it's because... Oh, I definitely do think... I mean, I don't think they'd have to ask because you mm. have... We're living in a... We're renting our property and they're meant to have... I mean, I don't know all the laws and regulations, but I don't understand how some when you're renting from someone, how they... It should be their responsibility to make sure the tenants are safe. So I don't think they'd even have to ask, to be honest. But yeah, for sure, if someone... And I think they'd also know the languages and they'd know how to navigate like the legal system to make their point across, whereas I didn't. I don't have the time to research that up. So this, it's kind of both of those things. And you did some kind of community activism after Grenfell Tower, like a banner drop. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. So that was a really nice way of... Um, I guess just to show... Uh, how much we were thinking of them so we just made banners things like um, with Grenfell from love from east to west that kind of thing Um, and it was really sad after we did that how difficult it was to get it published online because a lot of I mean pretty much all apart from two publications were saying it's not powerful enough or it's not a story that no one would want to hear and it was just like it was really frustrating because this was an this was a move done by people who were living in council states it wasn't organized by any group or anything like that there wasn't any agenda or anything like that it was just people who are living in places like Grenfell showing their love and how much it's affected them and I guess that it's just showing of like left organization I guess where it's it's still the middle class voices that get put forward even like the the protests that happened afterwards like in a silent protest you had uh, I would guess middle class but visibly white people like shouting the Jeremy Corbyn chant which like Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. No, I love Jeremy Corbyn, but there's a time and a place, you know, like yeah. it really did upset the people who were there. And if you look at the march, you're the first time that I've seen like many people have never been to marches before, like from council states, and they were really completely put off after seeing that because for them, that's not what they were there to do. They were there to show their respects to those community and then to be talking about a politician who is not from, like, you know, it's got nothing to do with him. And to be fair, who does it really matter who's in power? That would have, the same thing would have happened. It's not like Theresa May came in and suddenly she burned down the flat. So, yeah, that it just goes to show how much, how far we have to come to make sure we're platforming the right people and listening to people on the ground. If I could give you, like, you can do whatever you... So Grenfell Tower's happened and you can do mm. whatever you want. So you are the, the person in power, I suppose. What would what would you do? About Grenfell Tower? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. That's a very big question. Um, or, or council flats like that across I mean, the country. I guess a big thing about people forget about council states is there's a community there and people seem to think that we can burn... Like, we should like get rid of the council states and put people up in different places. But the thing is, there is a community there and that's not... I mean, from my perspective, I don't think that's what people want. They just want to make sure the places that they're living is safe and has all the things that they need to survive as a community. So, yeah, I don't think people living in council states want all these fancy houses. Like, that would be lovely, but I don't think that's their priority. I think their priority is making sure where they're living is safe. That That's the main thing, really. And um, so just looking at my own council state now, they're prioritising making the area look nice so they're getting little gardens with plants and that's all pretty but what about like the places for the kids to play like for me that'll be a bigger priority where are the children going to play like they're just playing near the bins and we don't have a proper place where you can play sports so they're playing like football in the car, car, park, car park downstairs and it's like that should for me that's the priority like looking after the people that are there giving them things to do giving them yeah, just giving them things that they need, not making the place look pretty. But Grenfell specifically, like, looking at how those people have been treated afterwards, even now to this day, it's horrific. And I think it's just, you know, it says a lot about the times that we're living in where people who have suffered so much are not treated with, with respect afterwards. And just how much it... Why, I don't understand why it bothers people that they might be getting... There was an article about, oh, the students who had offers already at university, those offers should be conditional offers should be made like unconditional essentially that's what someone was saying and the comments where people are just so angry and it's like how does it matter to you whether someone gets to go to university or not like how is that taking anything away from you 
or when um, people are saying they should be housed in empty houses and the people, uh, other people were saying, oh, we'll move away from our houses if they're housed near us. And it's just like, I just understand why people are so affected by someone else getting something, even if it is for free. Like, that's not taking anything away from you, but we're just so caught up in, like, comparing what we have compared to what someone else has. And I think that that's kind of how I see class, like, comparing yourself to other people and expecting more than what someone else has because you think you've worked harder. Like, how do you know what the, how that person has worked? And how can you compare how hard someone has worked as well when we're not even starting out playing, even playing field? So your parents, um, they came from came over from Bangladesh. Yeah. And then did you say that, that you're, you're the sole breadwinner mm-hmm. for them? Yeah. So how, how comes they couldn't get jobs in the UK? So how it works in my community, which might not be the same across families, but with my own parents, my mum didn't work, she was a housewife, and it was my dad who was working. But he worked in a restaurant and the income that he was getting was not enough. It didn't meet, it didn't meet um, how much you're meant to be working. To, you know, So he did get like a little top up of benefits on top of that. Um, but after he left, my parents and I separated. So he left when I was probably in year nine, year ten. So my parents are separated now. My mum, because she had been a housewife her whole life, she didn't have the skills to then go off and look for work. And also my brother's disabled, so she was the sole carer for him. So she couldn't actually work until he was even now actually so only very recently is she looking for work so all that time from year nine up until just last year when my brother's now able to look after himself a bit more or we're able to afford to get someone to look after him so she can go and work it was the responsibility wasn't me because there was I'm the eldest and there was no one else really so um obviously when I was in school we were receiving benefits but when I could work as soon as I could work that's when I did go out to work because you know the benefits it's enough to live and survive but it's not enough to kind of have an experience of life, go anywhere. And my mum didn't go to see her family until I was able to work to pay for tickets to go back. That's 19 years she didn't see her parents and her brothers and her sisters. So, you know, it's things like that. Like, we never went on a family holiday until two years after that when I was able to save enough again to take us all on a family holiday. That was our first family holiday when I was in university. So, it's you know, it's just little things like that. And also, I'm focusing on money, but it's more than that. Like, we can't... Um, even travel around like we live in London and we haven't really seen like the part of London which is meant to make it amazing until we were able to be old enough to take ourselves because my mum hasn't got the money to take us out on day trips and obviously free things we went to like we went to museums and things like that but we didn't go to like theatres and that kind of thing right Mm. class tends to be portrayed as something that if you work hard enough you can get out of or you can you can move through. Mm. What do you think about that, and how do you feel about that? I mean, I do think class is different to race in a way that you can kind of hide your class. You can have these external things that you kind of give away your class, maybe the accent, where you live. You can hide those things. But I don't think it's so easy to just move up. For example, now I am working in a place surrounded by middle-class people, so my income is the same as them, or probably slightly less, but that's another thing. Um, but... At the end of the day, I still am living in council state. I can't afford to move out of the council state right now. I still haven't had those experiences that they've had, which will inevitably affect how much I'm then paid in the future because I don't have the experiences. I don't have those links to people who can help me get those early promotions. Um, And also, no matter how much I earn, what I'm earning is what I've got. I don't have anyone elder than me, like my grandparents or any kind of ancestral money that they can give me, those cross-generational money and those income that they can give me my family live in a council state we probably will for at least another two or three generations because it takes time to get yourself out of this that you can't just get one job and move yourself out 
and also so what if I move out what about my sisters and my brothers so yeah I think it takes in different two race you can move out of like you can move up but it t- I think it takes several generations that like maybe my children will have slightly better access to things than I did but I still think it will be maybe their children or their children beneath them that will be able to kind of cross that barrier how often do those questions cross your mind then you know that you've got you've got like a pretty good job now mm. you're surrounded by middle class white mm. people uh, so how often does that cross your mind where it's like oh i'm doing okay but you know i still need to look after my family i still need what about my brothers and sisters mm. i mean all the time I, I live with my siblings so you know, i can't forget about them at all but i think it's because when my parents came over they came with the intention of giving us something a better life there was that pressure of having a better life and how they defined that was how you're doing financially and how you're doing academically so I think a lot of um, people who've got parents who are migrants will understand this having like this pressure on your back of doing well now this meant you don't really have a choice in what you choose to do so I chose engineering as a degree that I did because I knew it will be versatile in career wise it'll help me get a good career Um, I'm working now in a job that I don't really enjoy to be honest but I know I can't leave it to work in because I'd love to work in the charity sector or public sector like that's not where my passion is but I personally might be able to afford to but I can't afford to do that to my family so until all my siblings are working in places where they're comfortable working in I need to think about finances first and foremost before I think about what I want to do with my life and that's okay because like my parents my mum left her family and her mother her father everything for me to to be where I am and I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. I'm, you know, I am where I am. But obviously, it does have a toll on your mental well-being when I'm at a job where I don't enjoy. I'm surrounded by people who I don't particularly like. Um, you know, that kind of thing does take a toll on you. And it does. There's many times I do think about quitting. My mum would never stop me from doing that. But it's easy. So it's you know, she's saying something with her mouth, and I know there's something else that's in her heart because I don't know if I quit, what's going to happen to the family? Like, it's not easy. Just navigate that. Yeah. Is this something that is isolated to you or is this like happening with like your friends and the community around you? Is it a similar story where it's, you know, families or parents have moved over to the UK and their elder children are kind of doing what you're doing, you know, going out and getting the jobs? I would say it's not isolated at all. Just based on the friends and family that I have, it's always... It's, for example, it's like a joke of, of when we come home with our GCSE grades, we'd get the A's, but our parents would ask, where's the star? You know, that's not a joke that I've made up. Like, everyone talks about that. And it's because there is that pressure to do well. But that's because, like, our parents had so much instability in their life and they want that stability for us. And the only way they know how is through education because they didn't have that. So I get it. I totally get it. And I know it comes from a place of love. Obviously, a place of love with all these pressures attached. But you just get on with it, like... um you just have to do the best that you can and know that you've got the support from them. Like, I know I wouldn't have been able to finish university if my mum wasn't there to support me. Like, uh, every night she'd be home. Like, I'd come home at 12 in the night and she'd have, like, a warm plate of food ready for me. You know, that those little small things. Like, she supported me to be where I am. It wasn't just like, here, go and do what you have to do. And I had to kind of struggle my way through. She was there for me every step of the way. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. And at the end it is for me. She wants stability for me not for herself so Nigeria how can we be allies or better allies to working class communities especially I suppose immigrant communities I think um, I mean for me Grenfell being so recent was a perfect example of how 
people can be better allies just learning from the communities and accepting what they say because I, I remember many left groups being angry that the community is wanting peaceful walks down the street and it's like you don't know the pain that they're going through so what if they want a peaceful walk down the street there's time and a place for things and not always being you know like you had the SWP walking in and obviously we know what they're like and it's just it's so unnecessary it's so unnecessary for people to always have to own every single space and think they know what's best um, so yeah that's a big thing but then also when you hear the odd joke like for example at work they're always making comments about chavs and you know that kind of thing and it, I'm just sitting there because I don't really know what to say and I don't know if they know that I live in a council estate so they're talking about me and my family and my friends but I'm sure someone could call them out and no one does so yeah just calling out the people around you those would be the top things that come to mind so what are you working on? What can we platform? This is, the floor is oh. yours. How yes, I was reading that question. I'm not actually doing anything <laughs> at the moment. Um, I'm literally just going to work, coming home. But yeah, so no, nothing at the moment. Hopefully something soon. But no, nothing at the moment. Do you have like a Twitter? People can follow you or um, or anything like that? Um, yeah, my Twitter is Hadj. But it's basically just my name with a um, underscore in the middle. Cool. Mm. Amazing. Perfect. That was Hajira talking about her own experiences of living in a council flat and supporting a family. Oh, hey, Elena. Hey, Sid. You know what? Fighting the patriarchy and multiple oppressions is, is hard, tiring work. I can't get a good night's sleep. You're kidding. Have you heard about Casper mattresses? Oh, Casper mattresses. They are the mattress for kickers of the chiriarchy. With over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, it is a great mattress to rest and recharge, ready to dismantle the karaoke the very next day. Oh yeah. The thing is though, I really want something I can try for 100 sleeps, send back if it doesn't work out, and has free, no-hassle returns. Well, it's funny you should say that, because Casper mattresses do just that. You know... You spend a third of your life sleeping and no systematic structures of oppression are going to be smashed with a poor night's sleep. Looking after yourself is a radical act. Hmm, you're right, Elena. I do like sleeping and smashing systems of oppression. And Casper cut out the middleman, I mean middle person, and sell directly to customers at an affordable price. You can get 55 great British pounds off toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com and using promo code KICKING at the checkout. This sounds so good. Surely terms and conditions apply. Yes, Sid, they do. And you can use those extra £55 you've saved for things like smashing white supremacy or donating it to your local food bank or women's shelter. Wait, let me get this straight. Um, I mean, queer and non-heteronormative. Go for it. We can get 55 great British pounds off toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com and using promo code KICKING at checkout. Absolutely. And you know what else? Terms and conditions apply. Cool. <laughs> okay. do, I, do I press stop now? Yeah. Next, we talk to Mina, who explains cast and the role that it plays in the UK today. I'm Mina. Um, I'm the director of the Dalit Solidarity Network, uh, which is an organisation which fights against caste discrimination. I'd say I'm an anti-discrimination warrior. Uh, it 
breaks my heart to see that people would be discriminated on the basis of caste because how they're discriminated is because they're seen as untouchable. They're seen as lesser humans and they're seen as polluting. And this is in the 21st century and it just can't go on anymore. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast this month. We're really excited to have you on. It's a topic that we've been wanting to cover for a long time. And I think, especially when you think about the caste system, it's an element to class that people, especially in Western society, don't necessarily think of. So for our listeners, and I guess for Sid and I as well, because we don't really know much about it, can you just describe or explain what the caste system is? It's um, a structure Um, And I've had um, my colleagues who are Dalits, and Dalit actually means broken people. It's a Sanskrit word, and it's a structure which originates, some people think, within the sort of Hindu religion, which delineates people into specific hierarchies. Um, So you have at the top of the hierarchy scholars, uh, then you have the warriors, and then you have the merchants, then you have the laborers. And outside of that are the untouchables, the pariahs, the outcasts. Um, And they are not allowed into that structure. So basically the caste system is like a house without stairs. You can't go up, you can't go down. If you live a really good life, you can come back born into a higher caste, except, of course, if you're an untouchable, because you're just destined to stay as an untouchable for generations and eons. And doesn't matter what good you've done in your life, you still get reborn as a Dalit or an untouchable. And I think there are many people who are proud of their caste. No, I don't have a problem if you want to be proud of your caste. What I do have a problem with is if you treat other people unfairly because of their caste. And you'll just see that. I mean, you see it really, really strongly in countries like India and Nepal, Um, and other countries in South Asia. But it's a phenomenon that has been brought into the country with the diaspora. And I don't know how... I mean, I wasn't brought up in an Asian community. And when until I started this job, I had no idea that caste discrimination could exist in the UK. I never saw it, never came across it. Um, Most caste Hindus would say it doesn't exist here in the UK. But you would say that if you haven't been discriminated against. If you ask people who have been discriminated against, well, it really does affect their lives. And that's in all sorts of ways. So why did you get involved then? Have you, do you have any personal experience of this? Or what drew, drew you to work for an organisation like this? I'm of Asian origin, but as you can tell from my voice, I'm very British. But I do kind of introduce myself to people now with having the British head, but the Indian blood. Um, and they, the two mixed together very, very well. Um, and when I came across this role, I just thought, what the hell is that? You know, what do you mean Dalit Solidarity Network? What do you mean caste discrimination? Um, and I knew vaguely of sort of the structure back in, in India. And I just thought, nah, you know, it's it, maybe it's something I just want to learn a bit more about. That was seven years ago. Hmm. So it's totally under my skin. I cannot think of doing anything else until I can crack it in so many ways. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's so hard. And I think even non-Indian people who come and work on this issue, they take it with them when they move, maybe move on to their next job or, yeah, they become obsessed by it. I mean, I'm totally obsessed by, by cracking it. And I'm not a Dalit. And people would say, you know, well, how, how, how do you know how people feel about it? And I don't. 
but I can just see it. Um, I mean, here in the UK, um, you know, the discrimination is, we've heard of a story of an elderly lady, a care assistant came in, had a look on the walls, thought, hmm, this is a bit strange, asked the lady what her name was, where she came from, what her family had done back in the villages, and decided that, well, she deduced she was a Dalit or an untouchable, and refused to bathe her. And how do you take that to a tribunal or a court or a complaint? I mean, which is why we call it a hidden apartheid, because as white people, there is no way that you'd even know that was going on, because it's two Asians discriminating and one being discriminated against and you wouldn't necessarily see it or notice it and that's why it's been really hard here why we're really fighting for legislation to address it in the UK it it just can't go on so it's not currently protected it's not it's not it doesn't count under under race or ethnicity it's well it's the same race and it's not under ethnicity because it's too complicated because there's so many different different ethnic origins to the people who are being discriminated against. So it's not a protected characteristic. There is a very powerful and very rich anti-legislation lobby that has the ear of this government and had the ear of the Prime Minister of the previous government. And we know very well that the legislation, which is actually on the statute books but has not been triggered, is being blocked at the highest level. So the people are interested in not protecting against caste discrimination? They are interested in keeping certain vested interests happy. And those vested interests don't want the issue of caste brought to the fore because they think it would damage the reputation of the community. Um, And they're insistent that caste discrimination doesn't happen here in the UK. Mm. Um, And it so evidently does. And they've heard from victims. And it so evidently does. You know, the legislation itself can't protect against dishonour marriages, for example. That happens. Forced marriage because... Somebody falls in love with someone of a lower caste and they're told that that's not going to happen. So is that what a dishonour marriage is? Well, we kind of call it that now because it's all about honour killings and actually, how can you call it an honour killing? It's actually a dishonourable killing. Um, so it's, it's, it's the same thing around sort of marriages and, you know, you just have to look at the websites, Indian marriage websites, especially here in the UK, very blatantly says what caste people should be. So do you know anything about like the history of the caste system? Because it sounds arbitrary in the sense that quite similar to how I think a lot of discrimination is almost arbitrary in that it's like, you know, the only reason why um, you're discriminating against someone is because, you know, as simple as skin colour. Like that's arbitrary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, no re- there's, no, there's no difference whatsoever. So it just seems like if you're a Dalit, like what, how do you become one and why do you You're become born one? It. You're born it. This is the, I mean, and it's amazing because I travel quite a lot now. Um, but even in this country, if I'm within sort of that kind of Asian networks, people autom- always say, what's your name? Where are you from? And I say, Balam. And they say, no, 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 where are you from? And I go, well, South London. And I know why they're asking because they want to be able to pinpoint the name associated with the actual origin back in India and then to go backwards and backwards and backwards. And, and it's all down to your name. The Hindus would dispute this, but it, ha- it really does originate within the Hindu religion. So it's all down to the gods um, and the god Brahma and how he, he created India. 
So, and out of his head came the wise men, out of his arms came the warriors, out of his body came the merchants, and out of his legs mm. came the laborers. And outside all of that, you had the untouchables who were destined to, so for example, do all the, the removal of carcasses, especially cows, because that's all sacred and leather things. Where even today, so that happens even today, and even today there is an, the practice of manual scavenging in India. And when I first heard this term, I just thought it was like rubbish, rubbish tips, scavenging and rubbish tips to, to get whatever they could. But manual scavenging is what they, is actually shoveling shit. So there are probably 80% of rural India still has no wet toilets. They still have dry latrines. So they have a group of women who are called manual scavengers who are either married into or born into a manual scavenging family and they are then forced to shovel this shit out from the dry latrine, put it in a basket. They have literally a bit of flat corrugated iron. They shovel the shit into the corrugated iron and put it in the basket and then they have to carry the shit on their heads to the dump outside of the village to get rid of it. And if that's not bad enough, just imagine what it is during monsoon and where that shit ends up. It's been abolished in India, it's been outlawed in India, and it still happens. And people are still carrying shit on their heads um, because India can put 130 satellites in the air in one day, but it can't provide toilets for all its population. Mm. And it's just... So you're, 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 you're born into caste in the same way that I suppose you're born <coughs> into a certain class. Can you tell us a bit about the difference between caste and class? And does class play a role in caste yes so i mean it was interesting because i was looking um when i was looking at your website and stuff and you know the, the whole thing about intersectionality yeah this is a huge thing that plays a part in 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 caste discrimination especially when it comes to to women so it's the whole intersectionality of being a woman of being a dullet of being poor so you know class class and and patriarchy you know, and all the stuff that plays on with that. And I think, like I said, with class, I mean, and I get this accusation all the time. It's like, whoa, why are you always going on about caste? You know, it's no worse than class. And it's like, well, it is, because you could still be one of the percent of being a Dalit and being a millionaire, but you still remain untouchable just because you've got that money and just because you've been educated and you've raised yourself out of poverty you haven't broken your caste. So you could still go, you could still be not allowed into people's houses, still not allowed to eat off the same plates, where your the path behind you will be washed because your shadow has polluted the atmosphere. That's how bad it is with caste. I mean, and with class, you know, there is an intersectionality, but you can break class. Not with ease, but you can break it. And that's the key difference. And I think with with caste discrimination is such a basic abuse of human rights i mean just looking at universal declaration of human rights every single thing on that is doubly subjected to red dalit what does caste discrimination look like in the uk because they're talking about the the shoveling shit Mm. that can't there Mm -hmm. are toilets here i suppose but what does that look like you talked about the the elderly uh, yeah. lady. Yeah. Are there any other examples? There are lots of examples. I mean, as an organisation, we tend to focus on the ones that have a direct impact within equality legislation, just because that's the ones we need to focus on. And that's 
discrimination within education, within um, employment and within provision of goods and services. And the elderly lady one is a denial of a provision of a service. Within employment, I think you see it. I mean, we certainly have a member of our network who was a really successful sort of junior manager within the NHS and got on really well with his boss and all this. And then he asked for permission to go back to India to get married. And from those things, she started up, the, the boss started asking questions and realised that he was a Dalit and her whole attitude to him then changed. So he was then blocked access to promotion. He was treated so badly that he ended up you know being ill and mentally ill and um, he took the complaint to his bosses and his bosses didn't really know what to do with it and in the end I think they just settled and then, and then there's the whole thing within schools you know you can imagine I mean again they say oh caste discrimination our kids don't even know what it is but it's taught in our schools in our schools in the UK there is a textbook that I have seen that teaches about Hinduism and then talks about untouchables and Dalits and why upper caste Hindus don't want to eat in the same room or on the same plates as Dalits and untouchables. So the first thing that happens is kids go home and say, well, what caste am I? What caste am I? And then, you know, that starts the bullying, that starts the fighting in the playground. It's just, you know, it manifests itself in so many different ways. So it's not the horrendous human rights abuses, but if you're looking at UK legislation on equality, it exists and it needs to be it needs to be amended. And I think it's like, at the moment, the government's only listening to the anti-legislation lobby, but that's like asking a stalker if there should be legislation against stalking. Can you elaborate on why caste discrimination is a feminist issue and maybe an intersectional feminist issue? Because we kind of talked about it just then, but is there anything that the the, the caste system like affects women or minorities mm, or like mm. LGBTQ plus people specifically? Well, I mean, women, as I said, you know, it's quadruple, you know, multiple forms of discrimination. And caste-based sexual violence is probably the the highest on the list of that. We all heard the story in 2012 of the young Indian woman who was raped on, on the Delhi bus. Those stories within the Dalit communities happen every single day. We've had stories of a young girl who was raped and repeatedly took her case to the police. Her police, the police refused to register it because they were caste Hindus and they were like, well, you know, we don't want to touch with them. So, so we're not going to register it. So, and then she ended up being raped by the same gang again. And then they started taking photos. And when she finally got somebody to register the complaint and it got to court, the judge actually said, turned around to her and said, oh, it's a good job everything was taken on, on the camera because we can see now how you enjoyed yourself. That was his reaction. And, and it was like, oh, my God, you know, because a Dalit woman is, is less, less, less than human. Caste-based sexual violence also is about keeping Dalits in their place. So it's this whole thing about breaking class and you can't break caste. So, you know, if you have a, if you have a Dalit family that appears to be doing well then the women are used as pawns in that. So, you know, um, they will be the victims of caste-based sexual violence as opposed to just sexual violence in order to keep the family and their men in their place. Don't think that you're going to get the better of us because if you try and if you do, then we will attack your women. Um, and I suppose, you know, and then on top of that, you have the whole patriarchy issue. And, uh, and, and, and I think the sad thing is that Dalit women now have set up their own hashtag, which is Dalit Women Fight, because they have tried going to some of the mainstream feminist um, organisations in, in India especially. And it, it 
that issue doesn't get taken on board because they the mainstream feminists don't want to take on the caste-based issues. It's just, I mean, it's up, it's an onward battle all the time, and yet, you know, the the women, the discrimination against Dalit women is just so horrendous, and, and it's just ongoing. It's really, it's almost, it's terrifying Ooh. actually to think of um, how awful. I don't want to. I don't know how to say this without sounding like. I don't want to like trivialize it or minimize it in any way. Like it's actually terrible to think that like this is happening in the UK and it's completely hidden and there's no there's like no light there's no spotlight on it. You know, I live in East London, Ooh. which is like a, a high proportion yep. of you know like Asian families in East London, and it's and like and it's really shocking to think that this is potentially happening right under my nose. And I have no idea. Yeah. No, I mean, I have lots of friends who sort of um, work in local councils and local governments and stuff. And I mean, I have a friend who said, oh, my God, maybe that's why X in my team doesn't talk to or deal with or have any communication with Y in my team. I had no idea that it was possibly cast was playing a part in that. And, And I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you, you know, whether it be in employment, I mean, how do you deal with it? I mean, you can't deal with someone just not talking to someone. That's their bloody choice. But in fact, it's, it's that it's just perpetrating a system that is so abhorrent that, yeah, it is beyond me, actually, yeah. just even though I'm doing the job. What, what happens to people who are born into a mixture of castes? Are they, are they seen as slightly better than the lower? Like, does it still carry with them? What, what is it? I don't know. I'm a mixture. And I think it plays out within the family of the two people that get married, um, however that is. But I think then you, as a, an, an intercaste person, I suppose, depending on who you marry, can break it, you break it down further. It's so tied into patriarchy, because if it's about the name, that's mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. reveals what Absolutely. your roots are. Yeah, It's not about a way that somebody looks or talks. No. Or... I, I, but because there's, there is so little intercaste marriage then, you know, it doesn't matter. You're still two sort of untouchable families coming together. I think the worst thing is, so I talked about the manual scavenging, which is mostly the women that do. So the women are the ones that shovel the shit out of the dry latrines. It's the men that get lowered down the sewers with no protection, no masks, nothing. And they literally go down with a bucket to unblock the sewers. And last month alone, seven Dalit men died in sewers in Delhi because of the toxic fumes and drowning in shit. Like, can you imagine if that happened in the UK? How can you? I mean, I I can't actually imagine... In my mind, I can't even imagine it happening in India. I mean, we're we're just literally worshipping this country for its largest democracy and and the fact that it's, you know, it's going to open its doors to trade to the UK post-Brexit and all that bollocks. And, yeah, you know... 200 million of their own citizens live like this. 200 million. Is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to platform? Or? We are working on, and I, and I don't know how this works, but you know there is um, a consultation out by the UK government at the moment on caste discrimination in the UK. And we there is um, a, a website, dedicated website, that groups have come together and formed, which is casteintheuk.org, lowercase, where... I would encourage so many people to kind of make sure that they actually go onto that website, have a look at guidelines, but fill in that consultation. And it only really requires four questions, which is, do you want caste discrimination outlawed? Yes. And there are four areas that we highlight on that website that would be 
we just need hundreds of thousands of people to just say I, we don't know what the outcome will be we can go for a freedom of information after the if effect um, after the result but we can't do anything about it now but that's our particular focus right now and how can we support the Dalit Solidarity Network just talking to as many people about it as you possibly can and I think you know if people start talking about caste discrimination in the same way that you know we talked about transgender discrimination we've talked about race discrimination I mean all these are now protected ca characteristics but I will say it's not just about here it is about in other countries where this happens um, you know everyone thinks of India as this like lovely peaceful yoga practicing vegetarian eating country where nobody does anything to anyone and it's all like about Hare Krishna and all the rest of it but it's so not like that and it's so tense as a two white women is it our place to start conversations around it or are there other ways that we could support and and because we I guess we've got this platform that we've made and, and, and we've offered it to you but I don't know if you I, I don't have any good or bad thoughts in, the, in in that sense. I know there are arguments, and I've said to you, you know, I'm not a Dalit. I mean, I run the Dalit Solidarity Network, and that's the key thing for me, the solidarity. And if we don't have solidarity, how can we break the chains? And that's so important. Now, you know, there may be... I would never presume to run a Dalit organisation. That would be like a man running a woman's organisation. And I know that happens, but I just think... So I don't think just because you're two white women you should shy away from talking about it and because if you if you don't then it's only ever going to be a conversation between those people that know and understand about it and continue to do what they do and continue bad practice and continue discrimination thank you that was really good to hear yeah it's been amazing it's been really interesting really eye-opening so that was Mina, and I know that when we were putting this episode together, for me personally, and I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Sid, but for me definitely, I, I'd never thought about the caste system before and how that manifests in the UK. You can speak for me, it's fine. Well, I agree with you on that one. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, you, know, you don't think about it. And it's a sobering thought to think that you can move from social class but not out of caste. It's difficult because they are arbitrary concepts but they have really real consequences both class and caste which is kind of fitting that it carries on from race from last month because race is arguably a social construct that doesn't exist but has very real consequences but anyway regardless we hope that you enjoyed this episode on class and that it challenged you a little bit it's definitely a topic that isn't talked about enough do get in touch and let us know what you think. We love hearing from you, whether it's a suggestion, feedback, or just a cool feminist gif. Did I pronounce that right? Gif? Gif. 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 Tweet us at Kicking the Karaoke or get in touch on Facebook, Kicking the Karaoke. <laughs> Email us at kickingthekariaki at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.kickingthekariaki.org. You have been super, and we cannot thank you enough for listening. Keep kicking the karaoke, listeners. Hey, Sid. What? Do you want to get some froyo? Yeah, all right then. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.